Hello, everybody. Labor Know Your Rights is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. We are now a proud member of Labor Radio Network. Looking for a radio program or podcast on the labor movement? This is the network to find it. Simply go to www.laborradionetwork.org. On February 10th, the War Production Board announced the immediate extension of defense training to women on a basis of equality with the training of men. Still, on May 4th, 1942, the New Republic complained, We do not have a reservoir of trained women workers, nor do we have the necessary training programs even now. But women's training was beginning to expand, and by August 1942, women constituted or one quarter of all trainees in the Vocational Training for War Production Workers, BTWPW program. As a result of the various training programs, a great number of women received the fundamentals of industrial education. Moreover, many women entered apprenticeship programs, and by the end of 1944, women apprentices were at work in 18 skilled areas, including cabinet making, printing, and carpentry. The sudden entrance of thousands of women into industrial life raised many problems in a good number of cases. Working women were called upon to do two jobs at once, taking care of a home and perhaps children with the husband and father in the armed services and working outside the home eight hours a day. The bigger problem for working mothers then as now was what to do about their children during the working day. The WMC's October 1942 direct to recruit all women possible for war work recommended that mothers of young children be spared until all other sources of labor supply have been exhausted. Even then, the commission insisted that the first responsibility of women with young children in war, as in peace, is to give suitable care in their own homes to their children. Government agencies Social workers, educators, and politicians echoed this advice. But in July 1943, the OPM estimated that the armed forces and munitions industry alone would require 4 million additional workers in the next 12 months. The only realistic reserve was housewives, and many of them with dependent children. Indeed, the number of employed women with children under 10 years of age increased from 833,000 in March 1940 to 1,470,000 in February 1944. During the Depression, the WPA had introduced daycare on a national basis by opening centers for the children of mothers receiving government assistance, but this was primarily a relief effort and was not designed to stimulate the employment of mothers. The WPA centers were closed to women who were regularly employed. However, shortly after Pearl Harbor, the WPA opened its centers to children of working mothers and to youngsters with parents in the armed forces. 
It continued to operate this expanded program until the agency was liquidated in April 1943. In February 1942, the board received favorable ruling from the Bureau of the Budget, which permitted the use of Lanham Act funds for the construction and maintenance of child care centers for the children of working mothers. Washington eventually spent nearly $53 million for hundreds of daycare centers established primarily in major production areas. In addition, the Federal Works Agency took over 1,150 of the former WPA nurseries and supported them with Lanham Act funds, but 550 of the original WPA a nurseries were not reopened because they were not in war impact areas and could not be covered by Lanham Act money. Under the Lanham Act formula, local communities were urged to form committees to show their war manpower needs and the need for child care centers. These committees then applied directly to Washington, where the FWA staff, head by Florence Kerr, Assistant WPA Director reviewed the applications and approved the funds. The FWA granted money directly to local agencies, usually school systems or public welfare departments, which administered the program. Local communities were asked to provide 50% of the operating funds through fees and local contributions, but the FWA paid for over half the costs. The most popular type of facilities was the day nursery for two five-year-old children. Practices varied from area to area, but most centers operate continuously for 12 hours from 6.30 a.m. to 6.30 p.m. They served three meals a day, offered organized recreation, directed by nursery teachers and volunteers, and provided cots or beds for afternoon naps. The daycare center program, however, had more than its share of critics and opponents. These include Secretary of Labor Francis Perkin, who opposed both working mothers and child care, and who wrote to Catherine Lynn Root of the Children's Bureau in June 1942, What are you doing to prevent the spread of the daycare nursery system, which I regard as the most unfortunate reaction to hysterical propaganda about recruiting women workers? The beer struggle came to a head when the contending parties clashed over a daycare bill introduced into Congress by Senator Albert Thomas of Utah. The Thomas Bill gave the Children's Bureau and the Office of Education final jurisdiction over daycare and placed the burden of for initiative and funding upon the states. It proposed to operate child care programs primarily through the state offices of education and child welfare. Speaking for the FWA, Florence Kerr made a strong case for continuing the program already in existence and was supported by the CIO's women's auxiliaries. She was also backed by black groups who opposed placing the administration of the program in the hands of state government, particularly in the South, where segregation has been imposed upon one segment of the population and where past experience have shown the distribution of public funds to be grossly inequitable and where the most glaring inequities in provisions are made for Negroes. Although it passed through the Senate, the Thomasville died in the House Committee. The weekly fees charged for daycare were often as high as $5.50 or $6 per child, an impossible burden for women in service trades who were making wages as low as $12 and $16 a week. 
and no small sum for the majority of the working women. Others complained, however, that the centers could not accommodate mothers working on the second or third shifts and that centers were located in sections that were inconvenient for working mothers. Federal funding was also indirectly responsible for financing the child care facilities, establishing some private corporations. The Kaiser Industries Corporation built several child care centers for women shipyard employees. The Swan Island Center and Oregon Ship Center near Portland, Oregon became internationally famous. They reached their peak enrollment in the summer of 1944 when Swan Island had 444 children and Oregon Ship had 390 per day. The centers had special features too, such as long and flexible hours of operation, a skilled and well-paid staff, close proximity to the point of production, so that shipyard workers had less commuting time, and provision for hot takeout meals. This service enabled working women to come off the shifts and pick up their children without having to prepare food at home. Kaiser's child care centers became so famous that the company boasted that there were instances of parents taking positions in the shipyard so that children could be eligible for the centers. What they did not disclose, however, was that the centers were entirely funded at public expense by the U.S. Maritime Commission. Even then, the shipyard mothers were charged weekly fees for use of the centers, thereby contributing still further to the corporation's profits. Nevertheless, the women shipyard workers were eager to use the daycare facilities. But on the eve of Pearl Harbor, 44 states and the District of Columbia had laws regulating the number of hours women could work each day. 18 of these set the limit at 8 hours per day. 22 states and the District of Columbia prohibited or penalized the employment of women for more than 6 days per week. 17 states regulated their employment at 8 at night and 46 states prohibited night work in certain fields. Similarly, 25 states and the District of Columbia required by law that women be given meal and rest periods of specified lengths. Helen Baker's study of defense industries during the fall of 1941 revealed that two-thirds of the plants surveyed continued to operate on 44 hours a week schedules. However, within three weeks after Pearl Harbor, women's eight-hour day laws around the country came under fire for hindering the war effort. The upshot was a Department of Labor statement drafted at a conference in March 1942, which recommended a 48-hour week lunch and rest periods for women and one day of rest in seven. By the summer of 1942, this recommendation had received the official approval of the Department of Labor, War, the Navy, and Commerce, the Maritime Commission, the Public Service Commission, and the War Production Board. Provisions regarding night work for women were the next target. By March 1942, the aircraft industry in California was protesting that the payment of time and a half to women who worked the midnight shift made full operations impossible. When the California Wage Board decided not to rescind the regulation, WPB Chairman Donald Nelson argued that the decision would seriously hamper war production and urged the governor of California to eliminate all restrictions on employment of women at night. After much prodding, the Wage Board finally suspended the time and a half provision. 
A Women's Bureau investigation in April 1942 revealed that all but five states had provided for exemptions from protective labor legislation for women for the duration. A study of war plants during the 1942-43 revealed that the 8-hour day and 48-hour week were predominant. In addition, three-fourths of the plants had retained 30-minute lunch breaks and more than half had scheduled rest periods for women. The issue of equal pay soon came before the National War Labor Board, which had been set up to settle labor disputes that hindered the war effort. In an early case brought against General Motors, the United Auto Workers and the United Electric Workers charged the company with paying its new women employees less than men on comparable jobs. Elizabeth Christman argued the case against the company for the Women's Bureau, which she served as a special agent during the war. She pointed out that her own investigation made at the request of the UE showed a 20 cent per hour differential between men and women and contended that women in the labor force cannot be expected to exhibit the necessary morale when discriminated against by wage cutting. It is also important to the morale of the men on the job as well as those leaving for military duty to be confident that existing wage structures will not be undermined in their absence. In late September 1942, the board ruled against General Motors asserting that where women did work for the same quality and quantity as male workers, differentials were furthermore that NWLB warned that using slight or inconsequential changes in a job as a reason for setting up a wage differential against women employees would not be tolerated. Under General Order 16, employers could equalize wages without prior approval, but they were not required to do so. Equal pay was compulsory when the NWLB ruled on the issue in a specific disputed case brought before the board's attention. But when unions failed to make equal pay part of the union contract or when an industry was not unionized, there is little official recourse available to women. For that matter, even when unions won favorable 413 rulings, employers were able to evade or delay compliance. The Women's Bureau learned, for example, despite the landmark ruling in the General Motors case in September 1942, equal pay was not in effect in the plant in question as late as May 1943. Many women complained to the Women's Bureau that employers were able to maintain the pay differential by such ruses as paying women hourly rates on jobs which men received higher piecemeal rates are giving different titles to similar jobs. Classifications from skilled to semi-skilled, Bureau investigators substantiated these complaints. If the union does not ask for equal wage rates for women, the board will not order this practice even if the women are paid less. A number of unions were persuaded, but as we shall see, organized labor, with some notable exceptions, failed a sustained campaign on the equal pay issue. The same mixed picture applied to women's wages in general. For many women, wages rose during the war. In Michigan, they rose from $14.40 per week between October 1942 and August 1944. While male wages increased only an average of 
$19 per week during the same period, still the gap between men's and women's earnings remained the weekly wage gap, favoring males by $15.22 or more than $700 a year. In New York State, the average weekly earnings in 1941 were $36.60 for men and $19.74 for women. In 1944, the figures were $48.12 for men and $34.50 for women. Women's wages here, too, had increased, but the gap favoring males remained. The starting wage for a telephone operator in Chicago in October 1943 was $117 a week, increasing at regular intervals over a 13-year period to a maximum of $29 a week, with the average at 21 Yet the minimum expense of living for an operator, it was proved, came to $25.74 a week, with prices having risen 23.4% between January 1941 and November 1943, and the overwhelming number of women workers were unable to meet necessary expenses of living. Early in 1942, Mary Anderson felt impelled to write, Labor are the outstanding opponents to the employment of women. She was referring to the fact that a major problem in recruiting women for war work was that of securing their admission to unions and for many war industries operated under closed shop agreements which precluded the employment of anyone without the union's consent. As early as December 26, 1941, the Daily Worker urged the trade unions to act immediately to bring women into their ranks. The trade unions will find among these women workers the basis for a splendid strengthening of union membership, such has been the experience with their sisters already at work. To draw these new shop workers immediately into the union is the job of the labor organizations. This is essential not only in order to safeguard labor standards and the workers' rights during this war, it is also imperative because by entering the trade unions, these women workers can be invaluable in the forwarding of the war effort. Not surprisingly, the CIO affiliates posed the least difficulty in this respect, since the organization had always allowed women to become members. In the AFL, as we have seen, many unions had denied admission to women before the war. Pressured by both the government and the women workers themselves, a number of these unions, the International Association of Machinists, the Molders and Foundry Workers, the Iron Shipbuilders and Helpers, the Iron Workers and the Carpenters and Jointers revised their Pearl Harbor admission policies after, however, even with 5,000 women employed in welding and hundreds more scheduled to be hired, the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, the most intransigent of the AFL unions, refused to halt its opposition to women members until the fall of 1942. Women are to be admitted to ranks of boilermakers, read the headline in Labor of September 22, 1942. The report began for the first time 
In the 62 years since the founding of the International Brotherhood of Boilermakers, women are being admitted into the ranks of the union. The growing acceptance of women in AFL unions that had previously barred them is perhaps most clearly seen in the case of the Amalgamated Street and Railway Employees Association. It will be remembered that during World War I, the Amalgamated refused to allow women into the union, but from the very beginning of World War II, women were accepted on the same basis as men. The railroad brotherhoods, however, continued to oppose the admission of women and proved the most unyielding to government pressure. By the war's end, all AFL-CIO unions had admitted women. Even the transportation in brotherhoods had opened their doors at least a crack. But while the national unions may have altered their policies, several local unions remained opposed to the admission of women. In August 1942, the International Brotherhood of boilermakers and iron shipbuilders referendum on whether or not women should be admitted to the union was approved by the membership. Nevertheless, local unions 104 voted to keep women out, and local union 568 took a similar stand by a vote of 3 to 1. Both locals were in the Puget Sound defense area. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If you like our podcast, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you would like to contact us, we have various ways to do so in our show notes, along with contact information for the National League of Justice and Security Professionals. Thank you for listening.